Hello and welcome to the Gladstones Land podcast from the National Trust for Scotland. Episode 6, Gold, Dysentery and the Darien Disaster. Well, hello. Hello, everyone. Hello. hello. Sorry, I was, uh, wasn't paying attention there. <laughs> we're, actually, um, we're actually no longer in the, uh, the podcast cellar. We've, um, we've, we've decided... They've let us out. We're, yeah. uh, we've gone for a little wander around the museum. And... Today we are in the room in the the historic house that we call the Laird's Study. Rather romantically, yes. Um, It would have been a private space at the back of the house, uh, which um, could could well have been a study. Um, We talk a lot about Crichton uh, when we're doing tours of the house because he he occupied these rooms during the the 1630s, so hence why we call it the Laird's Study. Uh, Sir James Crichton, who we heard about Mm. last week. Yes. um, Yes. So we call it the Laird Study. What can you can you describe the room a little bit to our yes, listeners? So there's two large bits of furniture in here, um, along with some other bits and pieces. And um, one of those is a big uh, secretaire. So that mm-hmm. is a type of desk. Um, it's specifically a type of desk that has a set of shelves above it. That's why it's called that. Uh, and This is quite interesting. It's from the 18th century, um, so it's a little bit later than some of the other things in the house. Um, But we have it for a couple of reasons. Um, One, it ties in quite nicely with um, the sort of furniture that Deacon Brodie was making. And I think we heard about Deacon Brodie. Yes. Uh, So um, (laughs) listen to earlier episodes if you don't know who I'm talking about. Uh, So it's very much the sort of cabinets he he was making. Um, The other thing that's really interesting about it uh, is this is a period before bank. The first bank in Scotland opens in 1695. It's the Bank of Scotland. And um, prior to that, um, you've not got a huge number of options if you want to keep your valuables safe. Um, You might lock them up in a strong box. Uh, You might take them to the goldsmiths. They have a rudimentary form of banking. Uh, Or you might hide them away in secret compartments in your desk. And this has lots of them. Um, And I can uh, sort of... I usually show a few on my tour. Um, sadly, you're not going to be able to see it, but I suppose I could talk you through where uh, a few do. of them are. Uh, so we have um, the, the shelves at the top actually all pull out, which is probably not something you're expecting. And then behind them, they have false backs and false tops in, which open up compartments that you can store things in. But actually, my favourite hidden compartment in it is in the bottom of the door into the cupboard. Oh, um, and actually, the bottom of the door pulls out and a little secret compartment drops out from the internal space inside the door. Uh, so there's some very ingenious places to hide your valuables in the desk. And how many... Do, do we know how many hidden compartments there actually are? I know of seven, right? but there may be four. I think um, someone told me on one of the tours that every so often someone discovers a new one that we'd never found before. Oh no, eight. I know of eight. eight. <laughs> so, um, yes, absolutely. Um, we were reading some information from the 70s, actually, and it did seem to suggest there was another one we didn't know about, but we haven't <laughs> been able to find it. So there may or may not be some more in there. And... Um, it's actually a standing desk, isn't it? That's, that's rather modern. Um, it's too, is it so too high to have a chair? it's quite high. Um, you would have been able to sit at it. You've uh, obviously just had a stool a, a or chair. a higher chair with right. it. Totally good. But this isn't the most important or interesting item of furniture it's in the room, is it? No, well, certainly not in terms of the episode today. Uh, so 
the other bit, of, the other big bit of furniture in this room looks a lot less um, prepossessing, uh, but it is a it's quite a plain wooden cabinet which dates from the 1690s, uh, and it is directly related to the Darien scheme, which is the main thing we're going to be talking about on today's episode. So the Darien scheme was uh, something, it was a trading scheme, a Scottish trading scheme that was um, founded in the 1690s. Uh, and essentially, it the aim was to set up colonies and set up trading links for Scotland to compete with the East India Trading Company. And Brenner, who's going to be on in a couple of minutes, will be able to tell you a lot more about it. And this cupboard, it is is actually from the offices of the Company of Scotland itself, is it that right? It is, yes. So um, the offices were just further down Lawn Market, and uh, that cupboard was in the offices during the 1690s. It was used to store start files and records relating to the company, so it is directly related to the scheme itself. Oh. Uh, and actually it's on loan from the National Library of Scotland at the moment, so it, it's kept as sort of a piece of Scottish heritage. Yeah. And so we're standing in the presence of history. Like Absolutely, yes. As indeed we always are. Saw it all, I think. Uh, so, well, that's that's that. And as you said, Brenner is going to be on in a few minutes to, to talk tell about... us more. Yes. Right. Now we've moved, and we're now sitting in one of the upstairs painted chambers underneath this beautiful painted ceiling, which we've heard so much about uh, in the podcast. And we're here with Brenner. Hi, yeah. Hello. Hello. Um, and you're one of the one of the staff at Gladstone. Is that correct? I am. Yeah. Um, I started back in September, so around the same time as Kate. Mm-hmm. Uh, haven't been here too long, but. And you're here as our resident expert on the Darien scheme. (laughs) I feel a little bit like I can't necessarily claim expert with the Darien scheme. It's all been new um, for me, but I guess as the resident maritime historian, that by default, that makes me... (laughs) (laughs) That was was your... uh, That's your pitch in. So we talked very briefly about the Darien scheme Mm. um, in the introductory segment, but could you uh, give the listeners a little overview. What what was it and why is it important? Sure, yeah. Um, so this is sort of Scotland's attempt at getting into the, the trading game. Um, they want to, the, the creator, William Patterson of the Company of Scotland, wants to compete with the East India Trading Company. Um, so he has some, some pretty lofty goals there. They also want to get into the the colony game as well. Um, So that's where Darien and Panama was chosen as the the site uh, for this sort of trading hub between the East and the West, uh, connecting the two sides. And really, I mean, obviously it was, it's known today as the Darien disaster. So it doesn't, it doesn't go well for them at all, but it is only a a few short years. So it is quite amazing how something can really impact a country over a relatively short period of time. When it's first created, they, they need to get money, obviously. Uh, so they go down to London because Patterson, he's lived in London. He, he wants this to be sort of a... He, he, he's pro-union of 1707, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. He wants there to be links between London and, and Scotland. And so he, he first starts out down there, and he is successful. He does gain money, but unsurprisingly, that East India Trading Company doesn't like the, doesn't like the competition. Um, so yeah, so the, the parliament relatively quickly puts a stop to that. So everyone takes the, the money back. The English the parliament. The English parliament, yes, yeah. 
Um, so then Patterson, kind of in a bit of defeat, goes up to Scotland and is a little unhappy from what it sounds like that it wasn't going to be a joint effort. Um, but the Scottish people in general are just thrilled about this. It's sort of a, a patriotic rally cry. Um, if you can afford money to donate to the cause, you do. There's songs written about it. Um, so it's really a very sort of exciting time, I imagine, um, leading up to it all, because there is just a lot of opportunity um, to succeed. And so lots of people in Scotland donate money. Mm. They get all this money together, mm-hmm. um, put together the fleet of ships or whatever it is, and they, yeah. they go and found a colony in Panama. Yeah, yeah. And what sort of date is that? Can I just oh, jump sure, in? Oh, sure, of then? course. Yeah, I should have said that. Um, so the, the company's created originally in 1693. Now, it's not until 1698 that any ships leave and arrive in Panama. Um, so they spend a few years getting everything together, buying goods to trade and materials to build the colony with. Um, obviously buying those all-important ships. So there's nine ships that they either buy, build, or charter um, over the two expeditions. And it's all done, though, by April of 1700. So it really is just a really little blip on the radar. So what happens? They get to Panama, and what then? Yeah, um, so they get to Panama, and unsurprisingly, they're dealing with things like disease that they've never really encountered before. These tropical diseases, dysentery, things like this. So... They're dying, and very, very quickly. Um, and then when you add into that the fact that there isn't actually really anyone that wants to trade with them. So the Spanish have control of the area, but they don't want to trade with them, obviously, because they have their own trading companies that are operating. Um, England has already made it clear that the East India Trading Company is their main focus, um, and they actually go so far as to sort of banning any trade with the colony. Um, but even if there had been people to trade with, they didn't really bring the right things. Um, so Kate and I have talked about this before, but they bring things like like tartan and like two different kinds of heavy wool to Panama to, to trade. And it's just... It's hot all yeah. year round. <laughs> we double-checked that as well. It is very hot and very humid all year round. Um, so they really... They really don't even bring the right things to trade. They also bring quite a wide selection of wigs, which are obviously fashionable in Edinburgh when they set off. But again, something that a fashion that hasn't really reached Panama. Exactly. And And would you really? You don't want to wear wear one. That sort of heat either. (laughs) Exactly. They also bring like hundreds of Bibles because the the Kirk was a huge Mm. donator. Um, So hundreds and hundreds of Bibles. Very important. Yes, (laughs) all important. Those missionary type. (laughs) Whenever. Anyone talks about the scheme, as you said, mm. it, it, the Darien disaster. It's always yeah. l- almost laughable that mm. they seemed so underplanned. Um, yeah. What, the question um, that always the, the question that I always mm. ask is, what were they actually? What were they thinking? How, mm. What did they imagine was going to happen? Yeah, I mean, I think they imagined that they would set up this this colony that was in a. Honestly, it wasn't a good position to be that connection between East Asia and and England or the UK in general. Um, And so there was the opportunity for it. They just had poor leadership sort of from beginning to end um, is what I really think it kind of comes down to. I suppose it was also 
they were naive rather mm. than underplanned. Yeah. It wasn't that they hadn't put a lot of planning exactly. into it. They just put the wrong planning mm. into yeah, it. Yeah, and I should mention, because obviously they do have a huge amount of money. They do get £400,000 um, in Scotland, uh, which is like, I think when you adjust for inflation, it's around £75 million today. Um, so it is this huge sum of money, but some of it is embezzled and mismanaged. Um, and then when you add into that, that they just, all of those goods that they that they bought, they just can't trade. So a lot of money is wasted where it could have been spent on other things. Um, but also when you come back to the idea of leadership, Patterson is eventually ousted. So the focus goes from being a trading company to being a colony. Um, and if you are going to choose a site for just a plain old colony, there's probably better places to have chosen than Darien. And what happens to the colony? What's the sort of the eventual outcome? <laughs> the eventual outcome is disaster. Um, I think there's only maybe 300 people that end up surviving of the total that went there. So there's over 2,000 people that went, men and women, um, on, on the voyages, on the expeditions. Um, so a lot of people die. Only one ship makes it back to Scotland. Um, the rest are captured by the Spanish, are abandoned or in the case of two ships, hit by a hurricane and are now at the bottom of the ocean. Um, so it's just, basically, they, they couldn't stay healthy long enough to actually build a proper colony and a proper fort, um, even if they had wanted to establish it. So they just, I, I don't know what they could have done to properly prepare for the disease side of things, because obviously they, they didn't really know or even know what to do about those sorts of things. Um, but... I think going into an area as well that is almost entirely controlled by the Spanish and the area that you are trying to establish yourself in is actually controlled by a local tribe, by the Kuna, and the fact that they still have control of it says that they have been giving the Spanish a run for their money. So really, they're not, trying, they're not establishing themselves anywhere that they can really claim either. Um, so the first expedition has slightly better connections, friendlier connections with the Kuna, um, but the second expedition didn't really think it was important to make those ties. So that I think is part of it, because when the Spanish do properly attack them um, in the sort of beginning of 1700, end of 1699, um, they don't have an ally where they would have before. So they, they've, they've lost the, the, the chance of establishing themselves so it's uh, an unmitigated disaster mm. <laughs> they set up this colony it doesn't make any money and they're very after a few years mm. uh, between attacks by the spanish yeah. and the the kuna and their uh, disease and so mm. on they abandon the colony yeah they they run away to, to new, the new england area mm. of, of north america and so if this had uh if this had been many other mm. such events, then this would just be a footnote in history that no yeah. one would ever remember. But it's considered to be a hugely important turning point in Scottish history. Why is that? Sure. So as you sort of lead up to... So the in-between time of this colony failing, of the whole thing falling apart, in, so around 1700 into the Union of 1707, Scotland is now in a lot of debt. Because, as I said, the money's mismanaged. It's just they, they have a lot of debt that they need to try and get rid of. And one of the main aspects of the union is a forgiveness of debt. So for them, economically, it's really, really important. 
Um, but also sort of on the on the side of trading, they do they do get access to the East India Trading Company with the union. And so that gets them into the trading game in the end anyways. Um, and they, they you do see Glasgow especially really take off as a port because of the tobacco trade. Because, um, of course, it makes a lot more sense mm-hmm. to sail to North America from Glasgow than it does from Edinburgh. Um, which they do do with that first expedition, and they actually get stuck above Scotland for a few weeks because the wind dies. Um, so they at least learned from from that mistake. Um, but yeah, it's just it it really influences. Even if even if you want to take out of the equation the union and the debt forgiveness and such, this would have been a hugely defining moment in the lives of those who do make the union happen. So even if you don't want to say. The Darien scheme and its failure directly led to the Union of 1707. You can at least, I think, say that it would have been a large contributing factor. I suppose the context here is that is in 16, 1689, 1690, that England and Scotland got a new king. Right? They yeah. um, kicked out James the Seventh and got mm-hmm. in William the Third. Exactly. Yeah. And from that point. I suppose, do you think that union, that, that full union was inevitable or, or, or was it, is it, what I was trying to say is that what's often presented is that because of this disaster, mm-hmm. um, something that might not have happened was therefore inevitable, that, um, that, that England and Scotland could have remained as different countries, but Scotland mm-hmm. had this disastrous adventure and therefore was bankrupt and therefore had to enter into the union with England is that I mean personally I think that it hastens the union but I don't think that I think it would have happened no matter what Mm. Um, I think it just happens sooner than it maybe would have if they had been successful because if they had been successful their economy would be booming they wouldn't need anyone's help really Um, so it maybe would have just been more of a logistical thing further down the line rather than Mm -hmm. a necessity but I personally think that it probably would have happened either way what do you think <laughs> yes probably I, I, I always thought that it was fr- from the point of view of the the king mm-hmm. um it seems to make sense doesn't it 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 the, the as long as the one king had ruled both countries they'd always wanted to bring it together mm-hmm. and, and and i suppose more cynically um, from the English point of view, mm-hmm. they've never they never really wanted to tolerate a quote unquote foreign power on yeah. the same island. So it seemed like this was something that they wanted to happen. Mm, so there you go. And it does seem you you mentioned this mm-hmm. um, a little earlier that it does seem that this had, although it was a disaster in in, in the moment, mm-hmm. in the end, it had a, actually good. Um, a good impact for Scotland's trading economy that as a consequence of the union they were therefore able to trade with the now British Empire. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's sort of a bit of a roundabout way of of getting a a strong trading um, economy going. But yeah, they do end up benefiting from it in that respect at least. Obviously, there's arguments to be made for other angles. But from the trading angle, yeah, absolutely. They really really take off um, with that tobacco trade and, unfortunately, slave trade. Um. Well, 
I think that leads us on to asking you a little bit more about sort of your background in general. Sure. So we, we mentioned, you mentioned that you were a maritime historian mm. and, and this is sort of, in a way, I guess, what got posted on you here because That's it is okay. obviously... I'm mar- always interested in it. So maritime history. Give but me you, a ship and I'll be happy. You're a little bit earlier, aren't you, your focus? I am, yeah. So, well... I, I guess I'll start at the very beginning. So I was a literature major um, in the U.S. when I did my undergraduate at the University of Montana. Um, so the sort of maritime aspect of my interests didn't really start then, but I do sort of end up bridging that English history divide um, with my master's, which did end up being focused. So I did a medieval and renaissance studies Uh, master's degree at the University of Southampton, but it was very interdisciplinary. So it was English, it was history, it was archaeology, it was music, it was all sorts of things. So it was a really nice way of of figuring out what I actually wanted to do. Um, But my dissertation with that was on uh, the representation of the sea and of ship voyages in literature in the early modern Mm -hmm. period. Um, But it was a very sort of interdisciplinary look. So I did use history and such. And so it kind of felt natural to stick with history somehow. Um, and I found my, my PhD uh, thesis project on, on the jobs website, and it just kind of all seemed to fall into place. So yeah, I did look, though, at uh, medieval, so 14th century seafarers, rather than early modern period. Um, but I looked at sort of the time of mainly the Hundred Years' War, where we have so many records of ship voyages because so many ships are used to transport men and goods and materials to France to fight. Um, So we have just this huge, huge number of records from that. So you can actually do quite a quantitative study on on these men um, sailing in the 1300s, which is just incredible that it still exists. Sounds fascinating. And actually, I went to Brenner's talk on ship naming um, mm. earlier, well, end of last year, and it was absolutely fascinating. And it's, it's made me go away and read all sorts of things about it. It was one of the lectures in the Gladstone's Land lecture was, series, yep. wasn't it? Yeah, I was, I was lucky was enough to successful. sort of kick, it, kick off our lecture series. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I suppose the more the more widely accessible aspect of my thesis was the the cultural side of things rather than the socioeconomic side. Um, And so I I did look at at ship naming culture or practices as a way into that culture Um, because obviously you you name something that you've spent tens of thousands of pounds on in the 1300s, which is astronomical numbers today, it's important to you. you mm. You've invested a lot of time, a lot of money into it. So while the, the seafarers themselves, the shipmasters, maybe weren't actually always the ones naming it, they were sometimes, um, and they'll name it things that are important to them. And, and it was really interesting to, it, I, I guess as a way of sort of social history, in a way, seeing what is important to these communities in this time. Um, obviously, we'll never know f- for sure, but um, I like to think that... that you can you can find find interesting tidbits in there. If you launched a uh, a Renaissance warship, <laughs> what would you what would you call it? Um, well, one of my favorites. Now, granted, this was slightly later in the Tudor period, but one of my favorites was a ship named Merlin, which I just think using Arthurian legend um, to name a ship just is is quite cool, especially. Um, when when we think of it as being something that is more modern in a way, even though the stories have been around mm-hmm. for 
practically forever, um, I, I did picture, oh, Merlin, wizards. <laughs> this is a very modern focus, but actually people have found them fascinating forever. So, And I suppose ship names have only got sort of more interesting mm. as, as we've got, because there's still some amazing ship names yeah, out there. Yeah, but what's inter- what I find really interesting is that... Um, that we use the same names still over and over and over. So while the names have changed and are maybe a little bit more exciting or dramatic, we're still using the same ones over and over. Um, so like Dreadnought, there's been probably, I don't, I, don't, I don't know how many, but at least dozens of ships named Dreadnought. Um, so we're still focusing in on these. royal names as well. Yeah. And it goes mm-hmm. right back to, mm-hmm. then we've still got, you know, the QE2. Yeah, exactly. And And you do see royal names, especially kind of, with Elizabeth, that was one of the, the, the moments where I realized you could use this data to find interesting uh, parts into history. So Elizabeth, as a ship name, isn't used until the 16th century. And even then, it's, it's not used a lot until right around the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. And then all of a sudden, the numbers spike dramatically. And so it's, it's things like that where you can actually see, actually, yeah, this was influencing them. Um, this was something important to them. Um, so monarchs were a huge thing, but saints were the, the mm. most common, um, at least in the, in the 14th century. But even if you move into the, the Tudor period, um, they still, so Mary, number one ship name, um, which is by, by leaps and bounds, number one ship name in that period, which is just a bit boring, I feel. <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 I'm a big fan of those who want the complete other way with things like game pay and bone adventure and things like that. Game so, pay? Game pay, yeah. So I don't know whether the ship had earned him money or he was hopeful and optimistic that it would, but um, yeah, that is, I guess, the other side of the coin. <laughs> vivid memories of visiting a steamship, I think in Hartlepool as a child, which was called the Wingfield Castle. Mm. And that's always stuck with me as an absolutely mm. brilliant ship now. That is a good one. Yeah. What would you name your ship? Great Redeemer. Great Redeemer. <laughs> that's a good name. That is a good one. It's dramatic, but sort of simple at the same time. It's a good one. Or um, perhaps... Uh, hmm... Well, I've always thought it's that hard when you I've always thought the um, the place name ships mm-hmm. work well. Um, yeah. When I was in high school, we uh, we used to go often to see the USS Texas, <laughs> which is the only uh, is is the only dreadnought class mm. battleship still afloat. Okay. I think, which is in port at Galveston, Texas, mm. listeners, um, <laughs> and that was quite interesting. But anyway, yes, yeah. great redeemer. Mm, for me. That's a good one. And I think this probably, our discussion of ship names might lead us nicely onto our discussion of dinner party guests. Ah, oh, yes. <laughs> Perfectly the, the done. The idea of being put on the spot, I was glad I, I had a, a, a few days to think about this because I instantly forgot every interesting person that's ever existed mm. the moment I read the question. So, um, you, yeah. You said to us earlier that your first thought was Chaucer. It was, yeah. fortunately, Chaucer's already been invited. Uh, exactly. So. That means you get um, so to come that will with... be a nice sort of link into my first one, um, and that's John Hawley. Now he was a, a pirate slash privateer slash mayor in Dartmouth um, in the in the 14th century, and it's thought that he is the example or the inspiration rather for the shipman in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Mm. Um, so he was a very interesting man, and it showed he was one of the 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 key examples that I used in showing that shipmasters could have a life on the sea, but then eventually a life 
on land as well. So he's mayor of Dartmouth 14 times. So he, he has quite a prolific um, life on land as well. But he is meant to be the inspiration. And it, it maybe gives you a sense of, of who he was perhaps as a person because who Chaucer is, exa- is, is um, describing definitely sounds like a pirate. Um, <laughs> now, whether he is, is saying all, all shipmen at this time were basically pirates or whether he just was being dramatic for the story, um, it, it, he is pretty much describing a pirate. Um, he talks about the man having a, a dagger around his neck that he uses to get rid of people in dark alleys. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Useful. so very, very piratic Pirate-like? Is there a word? Piratical. There we go. That's certainly what um, Gilbert would say. (laughs) Piratical. So what was his name? Uh, John Holly. John Holly. Okay, good. Um, And then my other two are are not really maritime related. Um, So my second one would be Mary Anning, who finds loads of amazing (laughs) fossils in Lyme Regis, which I am a big fan of fossil hunting. Um, so I like to pretend like I'm Mary Anning sometimes. Um, so she just sounds like she would have been absolutely fascinating. Um, so I think she'd be good conversation. Um, so yeah, no, and she making her way in a man's world at exactly, that point, very yeah, much so. Yeah, yeah and, and dinosaur that, hunters. Yeah, exactly. And that kind of links in nicely to my third one, which is um, Sakagawea, who was a um, Shoshone woman who helps Lewis and Clark with their expedition as an interpreter. Um, so very much a woman in a man's world. Um, she's only there because her husband is a trapper. Um, I should say that she was forced into marriage with him, though, so not a very happy life in the beginning for her. Um, but she she basically makes their expedition possible because she's able to translate for them um, all while being at first pregnant and then giving birth out in the wilderness and carrying said baby on her back the rest of the expedition. Um, So just, she sounds like she would have been a really, really incredible person. And I did a project on her as a child and I've always just been fascinated with her ever since. Um, So I think as long as we had someone who, well, I suppose she must have spoke English if she was acting as a translator, so we would have been fine communicating with her. We wouldn't have had to learn Shoshone. And he was a, her husband was a French trapper. He was, right? So she was presumably Mm -hmm. at least trilingual. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, at least. Um, But I think from what I remember, she not only helped with the Shoshone, but possibly with the Nez Perce as well. So I think she probably, unless they all spoke I don't, I don't know much about Native American languages, to be honest, but unless they're, the different tribes had languages that were close enough that you could get by. Um, but they really lucked out with her because when they do reach the Shoshone tribe, um, it turns out her brother, in the meantime, has become chief. Oh. Um, so Because she had been <laughs> sort of abducted and then forced into this, this marriage with the French trapper. Um, and so in the meantime, so apparently it was a very sort of heart heartwarming reunion between them so that's that was nice but that was very lucky for Lewis and Clark because it could have could have gone either way um, even with a translator so well those are some brilliant additions yes. not only so yeah. we've, 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 we're building up a really good catalogue of, um, of, of top ladies oh absolutely unsurprising with the dynamic in Glastonbury yeah. there's a lot and, of strong um, women here and pirates too actually we've I think um, Holly, Holly brought, brought some, some pirates yeah. Yeah. I had considered some female pirates but then I heard that she had gone that route so I thought I would I would bring in John yeah instead. we almost need some uh, some civilizing influences <laughs> rather than oh, the other goodness, way around no. yeah. um, that doesn't make 
for a very interesting dinner party. And, and, um, and if I may say, delighted to have an, an, an American contribution yes, to the party yeah. too. So there we go. Right. Well, this has been a really fascinating talk. Yeah. Thank you very much. Of course. Thanks for talking to us. Of course. just fascinating it was it's yes. always it's a it's a delight to talk to someone who has a great enthusiasm and interest about any subject but i think particularly obviously uh, uh, as a medievalist i find uh, brenner's interest in medieval maritime history interesting but it's just it's just great it's just, mm-hmm. that was uh, i uh, thoroughly enjoyed that chat absolutely and uh, we we have a we we have another Gladstone's Land um, Darien scheme connection. Mm-hmm. Um, we do, yes. I've just I, I had remembered in the back of my mind, but I've just checked with Brenner. Um, one former resident, another former resident, uh, a, a John Somerville, uh, who was a merchant burgess or town councillor mm-hmm. of Edinburgh, died in Virginia in seventeen hundred. What was he doing in Virginia? Um, that uh, I do not know. Um, <laughs> it just strikes me as, a, as an interesting, probably trading if he's a merchant. The re- yeah, probably. The reason we know about this is that in his will, um, of which a, a fellow merchant, a William Menzies, uh, was his executor, um, it mentions these details. So it says he died in Virginia. Um, it indicates that he was one of the investors in the Darien scheme. He invested two hundred pound Scots, which is a significant um, amount of money. It is significant, not as much as William Menzies, who invested two thousand pounds. Goodness! Um, apart from anything else, that just tells you the amount of money that people were were investing were throwing in this at the project. scheme. Yeah. And um, how much was lost in the after... How many people, I imagine, it bankrupted. Uh, so, yes, both of these men, John Somerville and William Menzies, were investors in the, the failed Darien project. And one other detail in the will is that John Somerville uh, lived at Gladstone's Land before he went to America because he's known as John Somerville of Gladstones. So, there you are. Another... Another Darien connection. I suppose, apart from the fact that it tells us the sort of amount of money that people were investing, mm-hmm. it's also an indication of how many people were involved in it. Absolutely. You know, the fact that this one small house out of many, many hundreds in Edinburgh had... had Has a, a connection. Yeah. And also, I suppose, in some ways, it tells you a little bit about who's living in Gladstone's land. And we've talked about yes. this before, but they are. It is... On the whole, people with a little bit more money who are living in here. It is the higher end renters mm-hmm. in Gladstone's land. And uh, but why he died in Virginia, we do not know. A mystery. So, so there you go. One of the many historical mysteries. Uh, that's that's about all we've got time for this mm-hmm. week. This is usually the point where we address questions that people have sent in, and we've had some great questions over the weeks. Not this week, though. A little, little bit sadly, um, we've we've not uh, had any of our listener questions. So this is a reminder that if you want your question answering, uh, email us at gladstonsland at nts.org.uk. That information is also on our website, so you can find it there. Um, and let us let us know what you'd like us to talk about. Yeah. Otherwise, we will inflict you with any kind of nonsense, <laughs> random facts. 
that we found or things that interest us. So, so that's all. Uh, that's all we've got time for. The the only thing uh, remains to say thank you very much for listening. As always, we really hope you enjoy it. Uh, if you do, please leave us a review. Uh, subscribe subscribe on spotify itunes acast uh, and wherever else you get your podcasts and please do rate review uh, tell your friends all of these things help a great deal so uh, thank you very much and we'll see you next time you've been listening to the gladstones land podcast with me thomas ware and my co-host kate stevenson It was produced by me with support from the National Trust for Scotland. Our guest this week was Dr. Brenna Spray. Our music was Apollinaris Inclicti by Anibali Stabile, recorded by the Tudor Consort and licensed under Creative Commons. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, pass the pod, or email us at gladstonesland at nts.org.uk. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye.